The islands you occupy do not bind us. We will do what is necessary when the time comes. As we say, we can come suddenly one night. As reported by BBC, it was a little over a month ago that these words from Turkey President Erdogan shook the NATO alliance as tensions build between the two NATO allies, Greece and Turkey, over maritime claims and island militarization in the Aegean Sea. Many issues have divided the two nations, but Turkey has been particularly concerned about Greece's militarization of its Aegean islands, which they consider a violation of prior treaties. Which brings us to the question of how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Ashley Scaladini. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Drew. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for coming on, Ashley. And focusing on the international aspect today, stepping up is one of our associate producers, Eric Bunce. Hi, Eric. Hey, Drew. It's nice to be back on air. Yep. Glad to have you back. All right, guys, let's get into the background of the situation. I want to ask both both of you to talk about the historical basis of conflict between the two nations, Turkey and Greece, and how far back this basis of conflict and this tension between the two goes. All right, yeah, let's dive right in. The maritime disputes between Greek and Turkey are nothing new. Just last month, Nationalist Movement Party leader Devlet Bacelli, who is Erdogan's junior coalition partner, actually stated in reference to the Greeks that they should not test their patience. And if they want to be driven to the sea once again, let them tell us and we will throw them all, God willing. Interesting enough, this was actually a direct reference to the 1919 to 1922 Greco-Turkish War where Turkish armies defeated the Greeks' campaign to claim Western Anatolia. This segues into the establishment of the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923, which is kind of where this whole problem originates, because it awarded Greece the islands of the East Aegean as well as placed limits on military infrastructure there. But now Turkey claims Greece has surpassed the established limits, and the scope of the crisis has just brought in to include a number of new countries and issues. You kind of already got into the next questions that I was going to ask, Ashley, both the national pride of the two nations and the the trauma associated with the conflicts between each other, and going into the previous wars and conflicts. Do you have anything to add on to that point, Eric? Oh, yeah, Drew. There is, with any conflict in the Balkans, Greece and Turkey, there is literally centuries of accrued ethnic and nationalistic tensions and this is no exception we could go back well really far but i think a good place to start is to the founding of greece itself almost exactly two centuries ago the early 1820s they fought a war for independence from the ottoman the then ottoman empire ottoman turks between 1821 and 1829 and as you can imagine any war that lasts seven or eight years Mm -hmm is not a pretty conflict. It was bloody and there were massacres on on both sides. Following independence, um, full independence of Greece from the Ottoman Empire in 1829, there was almost a century of bloodshed. Repeated conflicts in and around, including the Ottoman Empire, in and around the Balkans. And Greece steadily gained land for almost a century until just after World War I, where the, as Ashley mentioned just before, the Greco Turkish war saw the Turks push back the Greeks all the way, basically wipe out all the gains that they had made. And around that time, there was another turning point in 1923, which is when Turkey declared their own independence under Ataturk 
from the Ottoman Empire. So we see this creation of a new state. But a common perception, particularly among Greeks and other Slavs, and some Slavic people in the Balkans, I should say, is that Turkey, modern Turkey, is a successor state to the Ottoman Empire. And this was sort of proven in their minds when the new Turkish government granted pardons to all the people who may have committed mass murder in the, the Greco-Turkish War. In fact, some people may call it genocide. In that period, following the, around the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, there were genocides, for example, of Armenians in the east of Anatolia, but also, supposedly, of uh, Greek Orthodox people in Anatolia on the Turkish mainland. So really, um, I mean, I could keep going, but that's like the, the root of this this enmity between the Greeks and the Turks. I think you bring up many good points, Eric, on both the historical basis of conflict, of the huge amount of tensions and events that have happened between the two nations. What I also want to ask is if there, besides the Aegean Islands that we are currently discussing today and I mentioned in the intro, is there another potential flashpoint for tensions between Greece and Turkey? Yeah, I'd like to jump in and bring up the issue of Cyprus, which has been a key point of division historically. It has been divided between Greek and Turkish Cypriot communities since 1974 when Turkey invaded its northern third in response to, to a Greek-inspired coup. Cyprus continues to fear any direct conflict in the Aegean seas, believing that it may translate directly onto them. Cyprus already sees themselves as a weaker point considering their history of tensions. And earlier in September, Turkey announced that it would increase its military presence in Cyprus in response to the perceived threat of removal of military arms on the Republic of Cyprus, which helped strengthen Greece's military in the east of the Mediterranean Sea. So a lot of what we're seeing here are threats towards what is perceived as threats towards sovereignty in these areas. Mm -hmm. um, I think, what you're, especially what you're getting at there, is the removal of the military arms embargo uh, by Washington. Um, and this is the great modern day, this is very recent, this was two, three months ago that this happened, definitely this year, that Washington finally removed an arms embargo for the Greek side of the Cyprus island. And to Turkey, that presents an existential threat to the Turkish Cypriot community, the uh, Turkish Cyprus, which really only exists with their support. And so obviously that's an ongoing conflict. It's, it's one of those kind of frozen wars that people don't talk about a lot. There's still, a, I think it's a 10-mile stretch of Cyprus, like a band of Cyprus, no man's land essentially, that is, is patrolled by UN peacekeepers. So that is still a tense conflict, and it's absolutely a flashpoint between Greece and Turkey. Yeah. I want to move on, although I appreciate both your points that you brought up about Cyprus, to the territorial waters and the claims of the Aegean Sea, and basically why there is significant tension between Turkey and Greece over who's claiming what and the territorial water claims. Do you want to go into that at all, Ashley? Yeah, so something important I really want to bring up is the UN's Law of the Sea, which is commonly referred to as UNCLOS, which explicitly states that every state has the right to establish the breadth of its territorial sea up to a limit not exceeding 22 kilometers. Turkey is actually not a signatory on this agreement because they object to the 22 kilometers distance and they have repeatedly threatened Greece with military action so that they exercise their rights established in UNCLOS. So that's what we see happening now, basically. Turkey believes Greece is surpassing the originally claimed uh, limits in the Treaty of Lausanne because they're abiding to the UNCLOS, even though the European Union and the U.S. back Greece's sovereignty. 
Another key point I want to bring up is the fact that Turkey has an appetite for hydrocarbon exploration because it's plagued by chronic economic problems. So Turkey is essentially trying to double down on its energy and exploration activities. And we see in the past Turkey attempting to situate itself as an energy hub, signing several oil and gas pipeline deals with various bordering countries. However, once again, since Turkey is not a signatory to UNCLOSE, it is not abiding to the exclusive economic zones that exist in this agreement. And in the exclusive economic zones pertaining to UNCLOSE, it gives Greece about 193,000 square miles in the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean. And so in response, Turkey has actually signed onto a maritime agreement back in around November of 2019 with Libya that cuts a corridor across the established boundaries. This agreement makes a bilateral creation of an exclusive economic zone extending from Turkey's southern Mediterranean shore to Libya's northeast coast, which directly disregards major Greek islands such as mm-hmm. Crete. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And so that could inspire just the Greek losing its sovereign waterways to help connect its the, the many islands in the eastern Mediterranean that Greece relies on to both expand its trade network and just in general communication between the different islands that Greece has ownership of. So it seems to me, Ashley, that there's just two states operating on two very different types of legal basis for territorial water claims and maritime jurisdiction, and there's accusations that both have broken previous treaties or not abiding by the same treaties. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Greece is also, I know I've touched upon Turkey a lot with their reaction to UNCLOSE and stuff like that, but Greece has also reacted strongly in response to actions taken by Turkey. Something else I want to touch upon is the signed agreement with the government of National Accord in Tripoli. Um, which allowed Turkey to send ships in that corridor as well as provide uh, direct military support. And Greece reacted pretty strongly in response to that. They actually expelled the government of National Accords ambassador from Athens in that area. So we're actually seeing a lot of back and forth between the two countries. And I know you touched upon the idea of Greece losing its sovereign waterways, essentially. And there are the, the you know, spoken fears that Greece may eventually be backed into negotiating its sovereign waterways. And I did this idea that Turkey is essentially, you know, orchestrating this plan to eventually get those waterways. To, to cut Greece out. Yeah. Yeah, I want to go back to, <laughs> it's because I'm a history nerd, I want to go back to the history a bit and work my way back forward. Going back to... 1923, you mentioned the Treaty of Lausanne earlier, and that's really important. That's when Greece and Turkey nominally made peace, and it was, I mean, up until World War II, there was peace between the two. And that's when Greece and Turkey really agreed that the Dodecanese Islands, think the islands of Rhodes, like right up against Turkey, those islands would be part of Greece. However, they wouldn't militarize the islands. And that's one of Turkey's big talking points now. And this was later reaffirmed after World War II in the 1947 Paris Peace Treaty over in Versailles. And so Turkey really feels kind of harmed, injured, that they're the injured party here because there was a broken treaty that these islands would not be militarized. But now, of course, they have been. Greece, of course, says that they're just defending their own interest against Turkish aggression. But this, I mean, this is nothing new. This conflict over these Aegean islands continued all throughout the the Cold War, even within even when you have two states who join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organizations, they're nominally supposed to be allies, they're nominally supposed to be with the US against Russia in the strict bilateral environment. Yep. That wasn't the case at all. You see, of course, what happened with Turkish Cyprus 
and Cyprus in 1974, right in the middle of the Cold War. And then especially right after the Cold War, when you kind of break out of this bilateral environment, you see conflicts start to, to spark up really quickly. I'm thinking in the 90s, they very, very nearly went to war over this very small island, uninhabited. It's a rock. It's a big rock called Imia that they both claim. They very nearly went to war over it. And the U.S. had to step in and, and negotiate between the two. And this also ties into a more recent hurt, which was Turkey's desperate or, or very, um, very strong effort to join the European Union. They felt that, well, we have a right. You know, we're, we're a landmass. Our landmass is partly in Europe. We have a right to join the EU. They made changes to the government in an effort to make this bid to join the EU. And Greece was very much against them from the start. So this contesting of islands goes back a long way. And it will likely continue into the future as well. One thing that I wanted to get into, because you mentioned it earlier, Ashley, is the recent tension between these two states and how that's been motivated, in particular, by Turkish aggression. What shape do you think this aggression could take place in a possible future escalation of tensions? Yeah, so a reason this is a prominent news story is because we're seeing a lot of aggression on the rise currently as well. We recently saw a video that showed a bullet hole in the window in the ceiling of the cargo ship bridge that evidently a, a Greek coast guard opened fired on for being suspicious. Turkey labeled this action a harassment fire, which exemplifies the continuity of using the concept of Greek aggression for reasoning behind Turkey's own advances in the Aegean or against Greece. We also have seen in recent weeks that Turkey has claimed Greek air defenses on several Aegean islands have purposely targeted Turkish fighter jets with S-300 missiles locked. Evidently, their radar radars on planes they did not fire. Greece has actually denied these allegations, but Erdogan continues to warn Athens that they will pay a heavy price if tensions continue. Turkey has also seen to be exercising counterattacks. Most recently, in October, on October 18th, actually, they positioned military equipment on the island of Samos and launched a test of short-range ballistic missiles to show that the military has the capability to strike anywhere inside Greece, according to Yahoo News, just once again to threaten Greek and kind of show them to back off of the islands, which they perceive as theirs. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, Ashley, like creating a national security crisis or an effect of like manipulating a national security threat as the tensions go to potentially launch an attack on Greece, as they mentioned, as you mentioned with the missile test. Do you have anything to add on to the possible Turkish aggression and the shape it could take, Eric? Yes. I think another important thing to consider here is a, is a doctrine, an ideology, something called the Blue Homeland. So this was something that was first come up with in 2006 by a former Turkish general, but it wasn't really pushed by Erdogan and pushed publicly until 2019. And I'm looking at a map of it right now. Obviously, you as a listener cannot see it, but I'll describe it for you. It, it extends out right into the middle of the Aegean and goes all the way down from like Thessaloniki, all the way down to the border right up with Crete and then all the way around circling Cyprus and up into the Black Sea. A lot, a lot more than you would expect to see on a map of Turkey, especially when you consider it totally encompasses all of those islands, like the island of Rhodes and the, the middle Cyclades Islands and the Dodecades Islands. So it's a very almost expansionist, aggressive ideology, basically saying this is our land. It's almost pushing a counterclaim to Greece. And so that, as we can see, an ideology can always drive conflicts. That doctrine 
could help drive conflicts. And all of those things that you mentioned, Ashley, all those little events of the Greek military launching missiles or the Turkish military launching missiles are just them showing their resolve to each other. It reminds me a lot of North Korea and South Korea firing missiles back at each other. And that's not really a comparison that you would expect to make with two NATO members. Two, two nations that are supposed to in yeah. case of a military attack on weather, back the other up. Yeah. And that gets into like the next point. So I want to turn to you, Eric, and look at kind of the tension between having two NATO allies with significant military tensions and at the possible point of conflict. And not to mention, this is happening in Europe specifically as a, the Europe is still dealing with the turmoil of the Russo-Ukrainian war. So first I'd like to ask you of like, how is Turkey balancing their relations in the wake of the Russo-Ukrainian war with the current tensions with Greece? Short answer is carefully. Turkey has been supporting Ukraine. They've been sending quite a few weapons. You see all these images of Turkish drones in, in Ukraine. But certainly there's also been a small, I mean, especially before Ukraine broke out, a small rep, uh, rapprochement rapprochement with, um, between Turkey and Russia, which is very concerning for the NATO ally that controls the Bosphorus Straits. They are the ally that essentially bottles up the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So they're extremely important. And to see them investing money in, for example, sonar buoys to put in the Aegean um, to search out and find Greek subs. Well, what we're seeing is we're seeing an extremely crucial NATO ally strategically positioned and sharing borders or close borders essentially with Russia, investing military hardware, a lot of military hardware against Greece, not against Russia, against Greece. And that, of course, is it seems totally contrary to what the, the NATO treaty is, is about. Mm -hmm. I also want to get into the perspective of both the European allies and the other nations with NATO, what they think about those tensions. And is there any attempts from European nations to mediate between the two, what are supposed to be the two allies? The problem is, I mean, if you look at the news right now, you'll see everything, Ukraine, the story is like a vacuum. It sucks up so much media attention. And it's not just the media, it's sucking up the attention of the politicians and the leaders in Europe as well, and the US, I should say. So there hasn't been nearly as much attention as there should have been paying attention to this increasing conflict, this spiraling conflict between Greece and Turkey. You know, in the past, I mentioned there was a conflict over an island and the U.S. mediated. Well, right now, the U.S. is so laser focused in, in terms of their foreign policy on Russia and China. I don't know that they're paying attention to this conflict. France has has made some statements in support of Greece, but France has other reasons that they don't particularly get along with Turkey. They're far from an unbiased interlocutor in this case. They actually directly oppose to Turkey and in Libya. So that's another point of conflict between those two. The U.S. currently is building bases across Greece, and they're actually investing quite heavily in Greece. So the U.S. has been pretty one-sided as well, supporting Greece and kind of dismissing Turkey as just being the aggressor here. But I don't, again, I don't think there's been that much attention from U.S. diplomats on the issue. Mm -hmm. The one potential attempt at doing mediation has come from Germany, who is the closer thing to a, a neutral party. But... Germany, I feel like I'm a broken record here. Again, they haven't been paying as much attention to it. They have a new prime minister. Mm -hmm. It's not Angela Merkel anymore. They're facing an election as well and tensions with Ukraine. So there's no 
real strategy right now by the European Union to deal with it, which is a shame, or NATO, to deal with it, which is a shame because they're two NATO members and they're both situated right next to Europe. Mm-hmm. There's some speculation that Greece might try again to do an intermediate posture, but right now this doesn't seem to be on, on their radar. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, both there's no one country that is attempting to really step in and mediate between the two nations. So it is relying upon the two actors, Greece and Turkey, to back down. Do you see any indication that either side is willing to back down for this or both sides are not willing to back down and this could lead to further escalation of tensions to the point of a potential conflict? I Well, I hope not. But it doesn't seem right now that either Athens or Ankara are ready to step back. And the rhetoric is not pretty. Of course, you know, both say that they're open to negotiations. But Erdogan in particular was standing in front of a nationalist crowd and, and he said, so to quote him, we don't care about occupying the islands. When the time, when the hour comes, we will do what is necessary. Like we always say, we may suddenly come one night. I don't want to overstate the rhetoric, especially when he's speaking to a home crowd. But that certainly sounds like he's talking about an ambush. And that's extremely concerning rhetoric. So right now, it doesn't look like they're going to back down. No. Yep. I do want to turn back to both the domestic side of this and also you mentioned both sides not being willing to back down, Eric, but both sides are also facing domestic political debates as there's re-elections for both President Erdogan and President Misotakis of Greece in the summer of 2023. you want to talk at all, any Ashley, about... Yeah, I do. I want to actually reference the blue homeland ideology that Eric was sort of talking about earlier. I think we're kind of seeing this ideology play into the the summer of 2023 elections that are upcoming, and I definitely think Erdogan is playing off of this ideology. So basically, Erdogan's popularity has been seeing a wane because of economic hardship in Turkey. Inflation in the country has hit a 24-year high of 80%. And so, you know, an easy way of deflecting attention from these very real economic and political problems that Erdogan is facing is, you know, fighting for, is playing up this idea of this Aegean crisis. And so... And so, in a sense, President Erdogan is trying to stoke up Turkish nationalism to mask the fact that his country and his people are going through severe economic struggles. Do you see anything on the Greek side of similar behavior, Ashley? Yeah, I think that there's definitely rhetoric on Mitsotaki's side as well. He was recently mirrored in a domestic scandal as well. There were revelations that Greek national intelligence conducted surveillance of an opposition figure, so he's also under fire for that. So I definitely think that both sides are playing up on this idea, and I think that it's you know, a very dangerous situation because while, you know, few predict, as Eric was saying, like actual conflict or war, the rhetoric has been strong and, you know, they have been essentially like militarizing and the risks linked to an accident are on the rise and, you know, potential mishap or miscalculation can obviously create serious issues in these parts that can, you know, lead to further escalation. That's not something we want to see. I think that kind of brings us to kind of the final questions I wanted to ask you both to summarize our prior conversation. I'll turn to you first, Eric, for these final questions. Of, do you believe that this situation could escalate into an outbreak of war between the two nations? And then furthermore, how would the rest of NATO react to a potential outbreak of conflict between Turkey and Greece? 
Well, that would be an interesting movie topic, Drew, when you have two NATO powers. I mean, I don't know how Article 5 would even work if you have two NATO powers against each other. But, I mean, putting that aside, is war likely to break out? I, I, obviously, this is all speculation. I don't think so. I think there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of playing to the home crowd right now. When you consider both going into election years, it makes more sense when you put it in that sense. But there are real tensions that need to be addressed here. And I think if we had an actual strategy for it, first of all, if France could act more as a, could get along with Germany and act more as a neutral interlocutor, and they could sit down and try and remove some of the sources of conflict, like perhaps declaring a moratorium on energy mining in the, in the Mediterranean Sea, which is probably good for environmental reasons anyways. And removing some of the potential tensions between the two would be a way of starting to lower the rhetoric and hopefully avoid any kind of conflict. There is always that risk when you're launching missiles, when you're firing shots over the bow, that one could hit. Do you have anything to add on final thoughts to summarize, Ashley? Yeah, I definitely just want to echo what Eric has said. I think we're able to kind of see that no party really has any true interest in like perpetuating the conflict. I think, you know, as Eric was saying, rather all sides are simply escalating the situation in response with rhetoric, in response to the upcoming elections. And I also think that the escalation is happening just in hopes that the other party will eventually back down and give them a way out. But it is important that we see de-escalation because, you know, there does exist the risk of an accident or incident occurring on both sides. So it's crucial that the quarreling parties make decisions at the national level and do not transfer any major decision-making powers to military personnel on the ground. I think it would only heighten the risk of miscalculation and unintended escalation. Yeah. Well, this has been a great discussion. Ashley, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Joining me now to round out some of the headlines this week is our news briefer, Jacqueline Perez-Garcia. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Okay, so first, Haitian politicians shot dead as violent gangs and political turmoil push country to the edge of collapse. Second, two car bombs leave scores of casualties at an intersection in Somalia's capital. Third, Rishi Sunak, another UK prime minister, the whirlwind day in 58 seconds. Lastly, China's Communist Party hands Xi an endless rule for flexing power. Some very important stories to cover. Let's start with the situation in Haiti. Sure. Haitian politician Eric Jean Baptiste was killed outside his home on October 28. This follows a series of assassinations caused by violent gangs. Port-au-Prince has seen a brutal gang confrontation causing havoc and displacing Haitians. Boshi Edmund, Haiti's ambassador to the U.S., has called for unity following Bautista's murder. An evolving situation that has major consequences for the political stability of Haiti. And you mentioned the bombing in Somalia? Yes. So on October 29, two car bombs exploded in Somalia's capital. Near government offices were civilian casualties. This occurred the same day the president, prime minister, and officials were to meet and discuss creating an offensive against extremist groups who have control in certain regions of Somalia. These groups have killed clan leaders to discourage the offense. An escalation of tensions that could have major consequences. And there was mention of the new leader in the UK? Yes, after 44 days in office, former Prime Minister Liz Truss resigns with her successor Rishi Sunak taking her place. He won the Conservative Party leadership contest after his opponent, Penny Mordaunt, failed to gain enough support. 
He has become the first person of color prime minister and first British Asian prime minister. An eventful and historic day for the UK, as the new prime minister has much to do. And our final headline? An unprecedented third term was imposed as China's current leader, Xi Jinping, was anointed leader. He defied previous traditions previous leaders have done to ensure a peaceful transition of power. It is expected that when it comes to international relations with foreign countries, China will be more combative as she is approaching a totalitarian view on his term. Thank you very much for coming on, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. The show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Kulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.